Hey folks, thanks for coming back to the podcast. On this week, you are in for an absolute delight of a conversation. This is actually a sneak peek preview to season three, episode one of the Unhinged Collaboration Podcast. That is the show that I have the great honor and privilege of co-hosting with school leader Kathleen Nagley. In season three, we've decided to explore the connection between space and collaboration. So in this conversation, you are going to hear from two remarkable leaders. These are the co-founders behind Otis. That's the organization to decolonize international schools. Let me read to you just briefly a little bit about their aims. Quote, our goal at Otis is to create a movement within all international schools, not just IB and the expat community at large to expand the scope of international education beyond current Western values to be intersectional and inclusive of all marginalized groups, end quote. So you will hear from co-founders Swai and Clara about the story behind their collaboration and the way it is shaped, how they have come to value student agency and what it means to make a movement a reality. Please welcome to the show, co-founders of Otis, Clara and Swai. Thank you both so much for being here. Um, and emphasis on the word here. As part of our new series, we're going to open with kind of a little bit of a quirky question, uh, which might be a good thing. I'm going to just sort of throw it out there to ask if you have any observation on space and impact. Um, is there a way in which you are thinking about space as a concept or a physical location um, in a way that's sort of new or different or a way that space has had impact on you um, in kind of a novel way recently. If you have any anecdote about space, we'd love to open with that. Um, it's interesting that you bring up this question because I just finished a class this semester called Psychogeography, which is about how people in general, but particularly writers and creators interact with space. And it's a lot about like our relationship uh, to the geography around us, but also just space and how we navigate it in general. And I live in Paris, so we usually use it to talk about Paris, but I've used it a lot to talk about countries that I've lived in and the fact that um, I told them about this sort of exercise I do where I go on Google Maps and explore uh, countries I lived in with a little orange person's little street explorer view. And so um, I've like explored Uzbekistan. Well, not Uzbekistan because you can't go on street views there, but I sort of explored it. Um, that place where I used to live, where I met Clara. And it's it's gotten us thinking about how like um, you can have these sort of digital time capsules uh, preserving sort of spaces that you have occupied together in the past. I think that's really fascinating. It, it reminds me of a um, you talking about that orange man going into and seeing this space and this kind of like these digital spaces that um, pull up memories of our own our own past. I, I had a friend of mine who's uh, in his um, 70s now, but he had escaped the 1956 um, uprising in Hungary. And um, we were one um, holiday a few years ago, we were just talking about where he grew up. And I said, you know, have you, have you seen where, you know, the, your, the house that you were born in and he had it. And I said, let's look at it on Google maps. It was something that he had never done before. And he hadn't seen his home in, you know, so it was over 60, 70 years or so that he had, you know, he was very emotional uh, going through that. When we talk about space these days, it's like this, this blurring of digital and physical and mental space is um, we're in exploring new worlds. Maybe. This is a fascinating course that you're taking psychogeography. Yeah. And I feel like there's so much that you can get into like moving away from the, the traditional literature that is used like on the syllabus and applying it specifically to third culture kids and the way we interact with space. And, and definitely, as you said, the way it's like morphed digitally because that's how we, use like technology as a, a coping mechanism to like stay in touch with friends and remember the spaces that we used to occupy and things like that. It's a very moving story also about your friend and the house. I, I, 
I think that what they used to say a coping mechanism too. It's like also I think points to the trauma of third culture kids that you 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 lean towards that word of of, of that um, continuous moving space that many of you had to experience as, as young people. And it's a I think it's really interesting also to think about how we can use that to empathize with like other people who are currently and in, in the future being displaced and like the way yes. they might remember like where they have lived and things like that. Absolutely. Yeah. And coming back to kind of, I guess, my my experience with space and touching on the the house that you like grew up in um, and like TCK moving around. I so I originally when I lived in London as a child from age like one to 10, I lived on a tower block on the 15th floor. And I always find that I don't know if it's directly from having lived on that high floor um, up in the sky, but I always feel um, like when I'm really stressed and anxious, I like to be up in a high place mm-hmm. and I like to be able to look down. And so where I went to university was a really hilly city and I really appreciated being able to go up on a hill and just like look down upon the city. And it made me kind of feel a bit more at peace um, and relaxed. So, yeah. Well, thank you all so much for for kind of bringing that, you know, again, I, I love that term of psychogeography. I'm going to be thinking about that a lot. And just, um, you know, all of you really pointing us maybe to like slow down and, and think about that as like, a, you know, place almost as a character. Like I, I'm thinking a lot about um, cli-fi climate fiction and how authors are kind of centering location as character now. And I feel like we kind of just experimented with that. So thank you for being willing to to share your perspective on that. You're both here to talk about a very specific place and space um, in your life. And, and that's thinking a little bit about your co-collaboration and your co-founding of Otis. In the show notes, I'm going to link to an article that you both co-authored in um, TIE, where you point out that as Otis has evolved, so have you both. For some of our listeners who might be new to the work, to the student-led movement that you started with Otis, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the story of collaboration that, again, is sort of the origin story of Otis. Um, So, yeah, thank you for the question, Trisha. Um, Otis started really from, well, back in 2020 when we were in lockdown and we were all confined in our respective spaces um, and the internet was our oyster. Um, and I mean, Swai and I were both in university at the time um, doing online learning. And obviously there was the um, George Floyd's murder and Black Lives Matter protests ongoing besides co- the COVID-19 pandemic. And there were a lot, it was a tumultuous time for a lot of people. And from being confined in physically in one space we kind of started to explore and reflect mentally um and we did a lot of discussion between ourselves as well as exploration on the internet in terms of understanding about decolonization what is anti-racism um systemic oppression all of these terms were really new to us um And we also had actually a discussion with fellow alumni from our school regarding um, anti-racist education, um, what was missing from our curriculum, what we didn't learn about. Um, For example, we we lived in Uzbekistan, but we never learned about the colonial colonial occupation of Uzbekistan by um, the Russian monarchy and then the Soviet Union and obviously other things regarding slavery um, and like the Haitian revolution were omitted from our education as well so those kind of collaborative um, conversations with alumni both older and uh, younger than us kind of led to um, me putting to Swai um, why don't we um, petition the IB um, about decolonizing curriculum and so from there we kind of 
met with um, Kevin Simpson, which was um, through our high school counselor or ex high school counselor at school, um, Yvette Quinco. And yeah, the rest was history. Um, if you want to continue on that thread, Spy. Um, yeah, it kind of just snowballed and there was, um, when we put up the the petition, it was really like, we didn't really have the vocabulary. We didn't know a lot of the terminology that, that we know today. And we wanted to, you know, find the right word that encapsulated what we wanted, uh, the way we wanted our education to be improved because, you know, it was very westernized and it was very like, you know, as we've all already discussed so many times since and obviously before um, 2020 as well, like central on so many like identities that like, you know, a lot of uh, Western or European uh, white able-bodied cis men and things like that. Um, and so, yeah, we, we thought about oh, diversify the curriculum, you know, call to we thought about titling the petition, you know, um, called to diversify the IB curriculum, uh, to open the curriculum, to make the curriculum more inclusive. And then we found the word decolonize. Um, and as we discussed in other podcasts, it was sort of a whole discussion about whether we should use this word and people disagreeing about whether we should use this word. And I think it was quite a blessing that we, it's a big word, but it was quite important and meaningful that we ended up choosing the word decolonize because there's so much to learn from that word and what it means and how it applies historically to decolonizing education at large and, um, you know, actual countries gaining independence from colonies and everything it means culturally, socially, economically. Um, and that's something we're hoping to talk about later in this podcast about like, everything that that came from that in us wanting to learn about international schools and then outside of international schools as well. Um, and then, yeah, we had meetings with the IB. We were um, lucky to get invited to many conferences and meet you lovely people um, and meet so many of the inspiring students that you have been working with um, to bring DIJ diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, justice and belonging into international schools um yeah so that's that's a brief history of otis organization to decolonize international schools um yeah so why what do you what do you think is so threatening about the word decolonize why was that so such a destabilizing maybe idea to um educators that you've met i think for them it's really political and as we have seen and are hoping to continue to discuss on our platform, um, the international school community and leaders, they really shy away from uh, addressing power and they really shy away from, uh, they, they like to keep things like neutral, devoid of power and keep up the, the obviously this doesn't apply to everyone, everyone, but you see this pattern, this behavior of creating this bubble that is international schools and where we're just international people who are here and we're a learning community and we're com completely neutral and it's impossible to have any kind of discrimination. Um, but there's so many inequalities that you can look into within these schools and within these structures, um, starting with like how accessible they are financially, obviously. Yeah, and just building off of that um i think it's quite um clear cut why decolonization today and in the last 8 9 weeks it's really clear cut why decolonization or the term decolonize would ruffle feathers um because as i was saying international schools uphold power um that's why you know english is the main language of many schools a lot of the culture is kind of you'll assimilate to an american or uk type of culture within the school if you're a student um, or teacher from a different background um racially or ethnically um and yeah so going back to why like 
in terms of real life event, well, real world events that are happening right now, we see that with Ukraine and Russia, um, you know, a lot of international schools were almost, you know, immediate with their outpourings of love um, and support for um, schools in Ukraine, which as they should, there is, you know, I'm not saying that they shouldn't have done that. Um, and it was a very easy decision to make because it was, you know, for the humanity of the Ukrainian people and civilians who were being targeted by Russia. However, now we have Israel attacking Palestine. Um, obviously, this is a huge conflict that's been going on for decades. But this current situation, we haven't seen that same level, if at all, um, any kind of outpouring of love and support for students and there are in fact IB schools which doesn't qualify at all it should just be for the humanity of the people um, and there are schools obviously within the MENA region um, Middle East and North Africa region which are also impacted because Israel is bombing Lebanon um, and other areas so I think exposing the loyalties and the fear of raising any political tensions and ultimately being complicit with the status quo of supporting um, kind of America and NATO allies. Um, and I know that's also for many schools tied to the fact that the US embassy is like on the board or other NATO um, embassies are on the board of the school like they were in our school in Uzbekistan. So that's also tied into it. But I think it really shows how much there is to um, playing into international schools and further shows why we do need to decolonize the entire system. Well, and, you know, you illustrate there your ability to, to zoom out and really see how is the system by design operating and really touches back to the idea of, you know, initially you were looking at IB, you were thinking about just curriculum and then it's, it's actually bigger than that. There's more at play here, um, but also looking at sort of the lie of neutrality as not being a political stance, right? Um, and I'm, I'm wondering, you know, you mentioned your story is also one of using your network, expanding your network, having a conversation with this person, having a conversation with that person. And you're both reminding me of you know, I have long really believed that when we're talking about the purpose of an education, its connection with our capacity to have challenging conversations, to listen to challenging conversations, to be willing to change our opinion, um, and how much within the system or the game of school doesn't necessarily set us up for that. You know, I, I've long thought about even just the notion of debate as this is like, we can do better than just debate. And I often bring up like Vox Media has this new type of a debate structure where the intention is actually more on like listening to the other side. And I'm wondering, you use that phrase ruffling feathers. And I often think like when feathers are being ruffled, it is an indicator that there's an opportunity for growth. And I'm wondering if in the story of Otis, you can recall a time where it's like, ooh, we're hitting a nerve here. Like we are maybe onto something or this is going to create a new opportunity for growth or this is going to help shape the dialogue that's needed to happen for so long. Um, was there a moment when you felt like it's one thing, as you say, for you to think so carefully about what is the best word? What is the language that we want here to help get our message across? There's that. But then there is also the moment where maybe you understand people are listening. Like we've selected the way that we want to communicate and folks are beginning to join this conversation. Was there kind of a moment even, you know, I, I think sometimes it can be something very small um, but do either of you have an anecdote about, okay, we've really thought about this is our message and our message has power? I, I guess it wasn't really like a small occasion, but um, at the, it was quite a large occasion, I guess, with the 
so when when we attended the International School Anti-Discrimination Task Force event, um, which was co-hosted by um, ALOC, um, ECIS, um, the IBO, and Ecolint, um, we were given the opportunity to do like a 10, was it 10 minutes, 30 minute presentation um, to the people, to the attendees. And I think that was not only was it the first time that we actually got to see a lot of the people that we had been talking to and collaborating with online, um, which already was something that made our hearts feel so um, full um, and warm because all of, a lot of the pe- people who were attending um, were people who are all you know working towards a similar goal as us. Um, but also just to see an auditorium of people um, who were completely like enraptured <laughs> with our work and what we were had to say. Um, and there were also some school leaders um, in attendance as well, which I think um, for them to also be listening so closely to what we had to say um, meant a lot because um, it can feel you know, obviously we're online and we have a lot of people at our fingertips, but it can feel like very lonely work. And, um, but getting more to your point about um, hitting a nerve, I think because the IB was there and obviously IB was where we initially started with decolonize IB and obviously we've grown to looking at the entire system. Um, It was, yeah, kind of scary, but also nice to be able to, feel confident and have the support behind us um to say hey look these are the questions that we want you to consider we've we're now in front of you and we're not only speaking to you through a zoom call um and they were very appreciative of that um so yeah i think that was a really important turning point for me and i think swile so probably you felt that similarly I think we just had a lot of moments where we realized how like corporate um, the places we've interacted with are and that a lot of the work is trying to move past that and actually saying what we want to say and having it be something meaningful other than just people quibbling over the right word to use in a mission statement that might not really change anything. Um, and so it's kind of, I mean, it's kind of this constant pushback of, uh, the work is important. Oh, but are we actually doing anything? Oh, but we still have to try and put things out there, um, and send these questions out that are going to force people to, to really interrogate what they're doing, uh, in their DIJB work. Yeah, no, I think it's a good point. Um, And it's definitely something that's the fact that, you know, it's like, what is the impact of our work? And I think, you know, is it, you know, coming back to the word of decolonization, is it truly decolonizing if this, you know, even if the the curriculum changes and, you know, there's maybe some more, um, you know, PSHE lessons about, um gender identity and sexuality and there's you know more curriculum that is inclusive and the school is working towards you know maybe having additional counselors to support students and things like that is that really ultimately the goal of what we want because for decolonization it has to be a structural thing um and that would kind of, and this is something that we actually spoke about in our original call with alumni from our school was if we are going to fully decolonize, it has to be like abolition basically. And we need to reimagine what do international schools look like and get rid of the big corporations, get rid of the IBO who has a monopoly on the diploma. And um, I mean, going then further, you know, thinking about, getting rid of this, um, what's the word? Getting rid of adulation for like the IB diploma, which obviously is a great program and there's a lot of 
merits to it but it's also like oh well I did the IB and now I'm going to go to an Ivy League school in the US and that sort of pipeline for because there's a lot of intention behind many teachers sorry a lot of intention behind many parents for their students there's a lot of intention for many parents for their um, kids to you know, progress through international schools and get a world-class education, which is fair enough in their own right, and then go on to world-class institutions. But it's then, you know, the idea of a world-class education, both in schools and also especially in universities, is very white and Western-dominated. And so we kind of have to unpick, if we're truly going to decolonize, we need to unpick all of these ideas of, um, world-class institutions and what does that mean what is a good place for the creation of knowledge um, you know why don't you want your kids to go to a school in somewhere on the African continent and that also then comes to where the resources go for these universities and it's you know I could go on explaining and rambling about it but it's all of this coming together of these systems um, and ultimately the international school space is very privileged. I mean, Swai and I both only were able to go to the school that we did because our parents were teachers there. They wouldn't have earned enough um, if they also had to pay our fees. Yeah, and so also our parents were privileged in that they had the specific passport um, that are that they were, you know, like educationally trained um, in Western Europe and so there's so many layers to it and we also you know we question like why do we do this work why don't we just go into our local communities which is something mm-hmm. that we have been doing a bit more recently and put our energy in there because um more useful I mean <laughs> I had a Clara's basically saying what I was kind of afraid to say but we've talked about it a lot and let me know if you feel like I'm overstepping Clara but what we've said we've had a lot of discussions where doing Otis you have to one know that the work is important but two understand that it's also very paradoxical um which is why you know and it's also a lot of work and a lot of time even though we have our jobs and masters on the side and but one of the reasons we've kind of distanced ourselves compared to before, apart from obviously the time that we have or don't have um, from this work is that, as Clara said, like we've been looking more into our our local communities and so many different initiatives that we can do where I live in Paris and where Clara lives in London. So there is that question of space about like the effectiveness of you know, there's a great privilege in doing all this online work, but there's also a great meaningfulness in doing things face to face and, you know, doing a workshop with kids and teaching them like how to use a sewing machine or Clara was was the diversity champion at her university and things like that. And so you get to interact more a lot on the ground level. Um, and I mean, I'm sure Clara could talk more about that or like through the work that we did with Otis, we got to reading a lot of books, um, listening to a lot of podcasts, and generally just like branching out in a way that we never did before. And for me personally, it also helped me think about my Vietnamese roots. And I had coincidentally gotten more in touch with my Vietnamese family. And so sort of thinking about how they were impacted by colonization um, by the French, which is my other half um and like interacting with um these associations in Paris that talk about Vietnam and like still trying to recover from the effects of Agent Orange um that are still like very prevalent today in Vietnam and in like even relatives in my family uh so just like it sounds a bit like far-fetched from what we did originally with international schools but Mm. so many of the things that we have gotten into since are like through Otis, thanks to Otis, and also thanks to so many of the inspiring people who we've met who, you know, they work in international schools and they want to do the the work 
for DEIJB and international schools, but also because they themselves come from a background where decolonization and power and globalization are like super relevant. And so they've taught us a lot and we're really grateful to have met them. And they still continue to inspire us. Almost like this beautiful parallel of Otis is asking folks to think about power, think about privilege, think about how change happens, why change is necessary, that Otis is doing that. And then it sounds like independently, you are each doing that as well. And it it reminds me of, there's a great podcast called How to Citizen by Baratunde. Uh, Adrian Marie Brown was on, and it's one of my all-time favorite episodes. I feel like I bring it up a lot. But um, she asks folks, like, where do you practice democracy in your community? And like, you know, she's got a room full of people. And a lot of people are like, okay, yeah, in my town, like I vote or I go to these meetings or whatever. And then she brings it back to how many of you practice democracy in your family? like in your home and like almost no hands go up. So I feel like I really appreciate you sharing this idea of we're asking folks to zoom in and zoom out and we're doing that too. Like, I feel like that as an example, I'm really glad actually that like we have that recorded to share because I do think it's a wonderful um, inflection point, whatever your organization or your school is claiming or purporting to ask folks to do is that mission statement like within you independently as well or not um and just your reflection on uh seeing the system sometimes for what it is but also seeing its capacity to change and i do think you know you pointed out what you're aiming for the big goal is structural but back to adrian marie brown again who says like small is all right? So any of these like massive momentous shifts, there are a tiny, a gazillion tiny little steps that are a part of that. Um, and so anyway, it, it's, to me, it's, it's beautiful to hear you modeling that reflection that Otis wants the system to do as well. I was, I was going to move to the second question that we had where we were asking about how does it, this is influencing your work currently. It, it sounds like you've already pointed to, to some of that um, in, in some of your responses. I'm wondering, it, it seems to me that the reflection you have now is that you've understood that once you started unraveling some of the, the, the structural um, issues of um, international schools, it exposes this elite white supremacist structural um, um, institution that is put into uh, places around the world to uphold these institutions. So like you find yourself trying to scratch the surface at something that seems way more massive than maybe your first impressions were in the beginning. Um, how is that, you know, for all of us, we go through this, I think as maybe um, Trisha is pointing to, we go through this that oh my gosh, now I get it. Like the curtain's been opened and now I realize how massive this issue is and how complex it is. And now I have to figure out like, how do I dig in? Do I dig in with that learning into something else or do I continue digging in? So how is it, you know, showing up in your your studies or in your work now, do you think? Like the, what's the real, the real learning that has come from this for you individually? Well, I guess I'll speak quickly to the work, well, the workplace that I'm in currently, and then more from an international school perspective. Um, I think where I work currently is, um, although it's a corporate space, I've been really surprised by how, um, you know, and it has hierarchical power structures and things like that. But um, on a more like departmental level, it's very open. And I think that speaks obviously to the managers and how they deal with um, their employees, but there's a lot of space for improvement um, of processes, whether that's the work that we do day to day for customers um, or how we um, have processes um, into within our department in terms of meetings, um, raising things with our managers, and raising things with upper levels and I think having those having those pathways um, to be able to speak to higher levels of power within an organization is really important for 
junior members of staff. And I think that's something, that kind of transparency is something that is often lacking in international schools um, from a student perspective and also from teacher perspective. Um, the power structures and the way decisions are made are often very hidden. And <clears throat> obviously this is speaking more generally rather than specifically about um, like curriculum or something, but obviously this also fits into the whole idea of decolonization and understanding where the power goes and who um, makes those decisions. Because obviously as a student, I was like, well, we have the board and there's the principal and the director of the school and they probably make all the decisions. Um, but in terms of, you know, for students to feel like they have agency as well within the school, it's so much it's so powerful for directors and principals um to bring students in not just through student council because there are you know issues with that as well in terms of the traditional type of student council um and i know that the from the Dusseldorf um conference the the ish international school of helsinki um, so the Student Voice Commission at the International School of Helsinki um, is a really great model for that. Um, and that's not to say that there's no room for improvement on that. But I think it's it's such a great way to show that there are so many ways to bring in students um, in a way that's not necessarily fixed. So you don't have to give loads of time. Um, it's individual, but also it means that a lot of people can feel like they've collaborated on something. And <clears throat> for a school to have that kind of structure within the student body, I think also shows um, that there's a lot more collaboration between the senior leadership team and the students um, and the rest of the teachers as well. Um, and I think that transparency key, like, encompasses all of that because it means that people do feel ultimately whether that's a student or a teacher um, or other non-teaching member of staff feel more empowered to speak up for yourself and where problems or improvements might be able to be made. I feel like so the places where I work now I feel like are very intersectional in a sort of not obvious way in terms of um accessibility and the environment and helping people that uh might be underprivileged and so i work in an association that um helps people who might be refugees or asylum seekers or who might be having financial problems and so we work with a lot of charity organizations and help like kids learn how to use a sewing machine um we work with associations that do workshops on how to sew like reusable pads and menstrual products and things like that um for different organizations um we've even had you know workshops where people can come and sew their own pride flag and it's it's a secondhand shop so kind of like goodwill or oxfam where people donate things that they would have otherwise have thrown away which are completely usable um and so we talk a lot about zero waste and we also talk about like accessibility because we resell things at an accessible price um and it's the kind of thing that i would never have been able to think was possible in international schools to be able to have that kind of work and i'm really grateful that i found it and i just every day i just see all these different little parallels with the work that we've done with Otis because it's about like recognizing you know certain districts in the city that are more impoverished or that have um, problems with maybe having enough clothing or you know things like that um, or homeless shelters that are in need of donations. I just feel like it's it's very real you know like it's very you're very much looking at an entire community of people that are coming together and trying to help each other out by creating like creating this NGO or creating this association or creating this workshop. And then after that, you make this workshop what we call freely priced. So people only pay like what they know that they can afford. And it's all about trusting that they will put in 
like based on their abilities. Um, and I think it's a really, it's just such a stark contrast when you look at international schools, which are, you know, very inaccessible uh, financially. Um, and I don't know, for me personally, when we talk about the work at Otis and the work that we do in real life, it's also just accepting that we're still in a space of learning and that we're still in a space of like trying to understand how everything that we've learned at school could be applied in the real world and trying to project this idea that, you know, there's all this work to be done in the international schools, but then what we can model, like what they can do after they leave school and like they can be diversity champions at their university. They can do various jobs. They can do like a lot of the work that I do that you could call community work, like they could do outside of their work as well. And so I don't know, I, personally, it's a lot of figuring things out, but also being really grateful and also feeling very humbled by all the people that you get to work with. I, I feel like you both have point out, pointed out that there are, it's sort of like multiple dimensions to our identities and communities in which we can connect and make a difference in many different ways. You know, like I, as way of example, like recently I was on a, a work trip and I had mentioned to my neighbor where the city that it was in and like, you know, my my neighbor Googled it and mentioned like, oh, that's really interesting that you're doing that. And then it was sort of like, oh gosh, I forgot. Of course, you know, this person, this family that lives next to me that we interact with a lot, like, of course they could Google that and how weird that I almost felt like, oh my gosh, now they know about this other thing that I do when you know, they, they know so much about me and just sort of, again, like we're a part of multiple communities all the time and our work and our learning now also is often in multiple spaces, in a hybrid space, online, um, IRL, um, you know, I'm using my, my quote earmarks here. And of course, for your generation, that is going to be the norm in a way that I think it's only, it's still for folks my age and Kathleen Kathleen's age, it still feels like sort of odd or novel that we can have community in multiple spaces. And then sometimes they also get together. And I'm wondering if either of you has thoughts in terms of the way in which that hybrid connection or some of that virtual collaboration has shaped the way that you think about what is possible in any space. It doesn't necessarily have to be online, but, um, you know, again, at multiple times in our conversation, you've talked about accessing and the privilege of having different networks, right? That we can reach out, we can get mentorship, or we can ask questions, or we can push. Um, so I, I'm, I'm kind of just wondering how that, like, you know, we, we constantly have like a foot in each of those spaces. And what has that meant for you? And what has that meant for what you're thinking about in terms of the future? Um, last summer, I got to do a workshop with some international sk school kids at an international school in Paris, and they have their own like DEIJ group. And it was really cool to see how motivated they were to do things within their own school and so I was thinking oh we're so lucky to have this community within the international school because I could get them in touch with like the students from like Kathleen's kids from Helsinki and like the the student voice commission and things like that and they have so many so much inspiration to draw from today that people might not have been able to have access to before the internet where we make things so readily available um and I also remember thinking because I was already working at the the resourcery, the secondhand store charity organization where I am now, I was thinking, oh, it's it would also be so cool if I could get them to come do workshops where I work because we work with like so many um, refugees who speak so many languages that like the French people at my work try to communicate with in French or in English, but we have so many international school kids that probably speak those languages that they could speak with these people and like, you know, participate in these workshops together. And I just had this sort of very far-fetched but really beautiful vision of like, wouldn't it be so cool if we could do that? And it would be like a way of 
getting them to step outside of that school bubble um, and still use this like IB critical thinking, whatever bridge building um, skills that they learn in, in international schools, but learn it, use it to like connect with with people um, and kind of branch out. So I was just thinking how there's so many possibilities to to branch out that way. And I don't know, there's um, it gave me hope. Yeah, I mean, thinking about virtual spaces, I mean, as I touched on at the beginning, um, Otis, or originally Decolonize IB, came out of a virtual space and for the most part operates within a virtual space, um, which I think, as you said, I mean, they can't, there is a lot of community online and it's something that we definitely found. Um, but I think it can also be quite lonely um, and we definitely really appreciated the opportunities. <clears throat> we definitely um, appreciated the opportunities to um, get together with people um, that we had been interacting with online because I think you can't understate the um, importance of being with people physically. Um, and I think and that solidarity um, from being face to face. Um, and yeah, I think also, I mean, online, and as I mentioned earlier, having the internet and being able to keep in touch with friends, um, just from being a TCK and living internationally is such an important part of our lives. Um, and, you know, my mom has always said like, oh, you're so lucky, you don't have to write letters and, you know, then someone's changed address and then you lose touch with this person and you find them on Facebook 20 years later. Um, you know, for the most part, they're, you know, one message, text message away on Facebook or whatever platform. Um, and so it's definitely something we're very lucky to be able to use both having those virtual but also physical um, spaces for connection not just in Otis work but also in personal lives um, and I think it's such a great tool also for accessibility and connecting with people across time zones as well um, even if it means some people have to wake up ridiculously early or <laughs> go to bed um, very late um, but it is really powerful and yeah I mean without the internet the majority of the impact that we've made in such a short time, um, especially with the petition in the first few months, would not have been able to happen without that because the internet is truly powerful in that way. Um, yeah. And like you can, um, the internet also helps to spread news about where you can attend protests and we get to see also like the different protests that like I see where Clara goes and she sees where I go and like right now in our Otis community specifically we're seeing so many people share things about the protests that they're attending in like just in support of um, Palestine and Gaza it's been very uh, reassuring and inspiring to see like so many members of the community like showing how we're all participating in this all over the world yeah I you know, you're you're reminding me, I, I have this quote that has been on my mind a lot. It comes from a book called The Alignment Program, uh, the, the Alignment Problem. The author is Brian Christian, and he says, our human, social, and civic dilemmas are becoming technical, and our technical dilemmas are becoming human, social, and civic. And that interplay really it interests me. And I, I, I get the great privilege of working with student groups often and looking at like how do online campaigns work? How do they function? How are they developed? Um, and you know, what are some of the skills that we need to cultivate in order to be able to develop a movement like you have in order to campaign? Um, and I, I find like real examples and case studies are great to kind of dig into. And people often scoff, but I always mention like we will look at the Free Britney movement because it wasn't sort of like professional organizers. It wasn't folks with like a political background. It was Britney Spears fans. And often when people scoff, I also like to say like the notion of taste is also a construct. 
and the notion of so-called good taste also can do real harm. So again, like I, I feel like it's an interesting case study to look into. And I mention it um, because I'm wondering for folks who are listening and they're thinking student-led movements are critical, they're necessary right now. Otis is an example that really proves that point. And we're also at a time because of AI where we are questioning like, what is the point of school? And I would hope that one of the points of school would be, um, as you've mentioned several times, student voice, but also the opportunity to practice and rehearse building community. So I'm wondering for educators who are listening and they're thinking, Otis is a movement. It's going to be the story of one of hopefully many student movements that we're going to need in order to do that great structural change. For somebody who's listening and they're thinking, I also want to help students rehearse, build capacity for skills that are essential for anyone who wants to spark a movement. Do either of you have thoughts on a skill that has been so critical for you um, in the story of Otis that you're saying, educators pay attention to this skill because movement work relies heavily on it, or at least it did in your case word that comes to mind for me is humanity and being able to perceive and and um recognize our innate humanity for me one of the big things was just being i mean it sounds cheesy i guess but being open to learning um and just not having not coming to a space with preconceptions of how a conversation should go. And, you know, cause often we come and, you know, it's still something that I'm working on. It's not something that I've perfected, but coming to a space um, without feeling like, okay, this is the conclusion that I want to have from this conversation. These are the points that I want to make. Um, you know, sometimes, it is necessary, but I think when we're trying to start and create those spaces for discussion to start thinking about where we are in terms of the school or what's going on in the world, it's important to allow people to meet people where they are and not try and force your own opinions on them or how you might view the world. And I think especially, I guess, for teachers, obviously you have you know more life experience in terms of you've just been around longer and so you you know I don't however you want to define it life experience whether that's having moved around and experienced a lot of cultures or you know having met many different people um and in fact depending on how you might um define experience some students might have more life experience um in certain things than you as a teacher and I think it's really about yeah like humbling yourself and just meeting the students where they're at and removing that power from the conversation of being like right I'm the teacher and you're going to listen to what I'm saying whereas instead of being like okay we're we're all coming to this as equal parties and I think that's something that can be quite difficult to deconstruct especially in schools where it is you know a lot of it is built around you know you go to the class and the teacher tells you what you're learning you know you've got an essay due next week um and so it's it's not going to be an easy thing that can necessarily be switched on straight away because students are also programmed to you know throughout their school journey to listen to teachers and generally take what they say as fact um, whether it is um, the full story or not and it's something that my history teacher always used to say in IB he, he'd say um, you know don't just believe what I'm saying you know go home and check it yourself and I think that's a really important place to be as a teacher um, to not hold yourself um, too seriously and be accepting of learning new things um, from students and teachers and other members of community. 
Well, I think that kind of uh, brings us back to the importance of this organization. I remember when um, you first put your online p- petition out there on what was then called Twitter, um, and I just remember being so excited that there was there were there were kids out there in the middle of the pandemic who were saying things that were really important when there was there was so much chatter around um, what was happening. Um, you know, in kind of the home while while people were isolated during the pandemic and here the both of you, and I'm guessing some of your friends were saying, wait a second, this is an opportunity for us to say, we, we see the big picture now. We, we see um, something that um, is critical for us to move forward, that um, this is a chance for us to expose and speak truth to power. And, um, you know, what, whatever happens later on, I, I think it will be part of that error of what happened in the international school world. And, you know, I, I just know as a school leader, hearing that message in that time period was 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 incredibly hopeful. Like, okay, um, the kids are, are, are paying attention. They're saying that what we're doing is structurally um, oppressive um, and doesn't make sense to um, what is needed on this planet um, in, in this time of crisis and a worldwide crisis and how we should move forward uh, in terms of thinking about power. So uh, just just very grateful for the both of you during that time to to raise your voice and um, be part of that his, history of international schools and hopefully the changes that might come one day. Yeah, I, I really just thank you both for coming and expanding. As you mentioned, you've been on other podcasts. We will link to that in the show notes as well as the article um, in TIE that I referred to. And again, the example and the reminder, as you both mentioned, that students don't only notice what's in the curriculum, they notice what's not there as well. Um, And so this idea that um, we hear what's said, we notice the silence, I think is a really great again, just inflection point for school leaders, check in with students, ask them what they're noticing, ask them what has been omitted that they would like to rectify. And just that, um, you know, as as you, you both said, it's sort of, we are going to have to face the need, the necessity for change and work on it together. So a really great example, like if your school is not functioning in a way where there's educator student partnership, what is the point of your school? Um, and and again, like to what extent are you anywhere even remotely close the conver- to the conversation that your so-called mission statement hopes to achieve? Thank you so much for talking to us about uh, you know space and place and time of Otis and kind of just going backward and forward with us in what it has meant to you. And thank you again for again giving so many students a great point of inspiration for here's what can happen when two folks get together and decide to collaborate. Um, I think sometimes when we talk about the idea of a movement, maybe we're thinking like, is it a thousand people? And even if it is, the thousand people started probably with one and then another person asking each other a question. So um, again, really appreciate your insight and wish the both of you the like you know, just great future collaborations as well. So thank you so much. Thanks so much. Folks, thank you so much for tuning into this episode. If this conversation has inspired you, please do be on the lookout for Unhinged Collaboration Podcast's third season, where we interrogate the connection between space and collaboration. The Be A Better Ally podcast is about to go on break. It has been a busy year for all of us and rest is important. So all of January, there will not be any episodes of the Be A Better Ally podcast. If you'd like to catch me, you can always, of course, catch me chatting every Monday on the Shifting Schools podcast. This January, our special mini-series on mental health kicks off. That's the very first week of January. 
Otherwise, I'll see you all again in February, and I wish you a very happy end to 2023, and I look forward to seeing you next year. Thanks for listening, folks.